God's grace is greater than my bitterness. Every single one of us have been hurt. Someone has hurt you. And as you think through in your mind about the people that have hurt you, and instantly your stomach goes, and it starts tightening up. And you think about how that person hurt you. Well, today we're going to be walking through, and really it's, it's one simple step. And I don't want you to be dismissive because it's a simple step, because it's not an easy step. It's just a simplistic step. It's going to take you, and I'm not saying this to hurt you, I'm saying this to help you, it's going to take you a lifetime to really fully understand. Our series goal is to help you to experience and share God's grace in your daily life. A simple definition of grace is simply the word favor. The word favor has the understanding of God's favor bestowed upon the undeserving. We do not deserve the grace that God has given to us, but therefore but we simply accept it. And we enjoy that favor. And God's grace is greater than, and I want you to fill the blank in. As you hold that card in your hand, I want you to think about, in a positive way, that person that has hurt you. We talk about bitterness today. And use it as a visual reminder for you that God's grace, God's favor bestowed upon the undeserving, is greater than your bitterness. Our principle for today is this. And every single Sunday, we have a principle that we seek to apply to our life. And the principle is this. God's grace is greater than the poison of bitterness. Maybe you need to take a moment in your mind and to think through that. Because bitterness is something that becomes a normal lifestyle for us. We don't actually recognize that there's a life that we are called to as believers in Jesus Christ that does not include bitterness. We need to take a moment and say, I recognize the feelings that I have towards other people and towards circumstances, towards my parents, towards that work colleague, towards my family, even my children, is not the way that we're called to live. So let's look at the Bible and this morning we have three different doors we're going to go through. But to set a foundation, we're going to talk about why we need this grace. Our source of grace, of course, is Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's the foundation of where we discover grace from. It's found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's the only way we're going to experience the favor of God is through this relationship with God through Jesus Christ. When we have this relationship, it results in grace. And going back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 15, it says that see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So we as a local church, we as individual Christians have a mandate to go out and share this grace with others. It's not something that we can selfishly hold to ourselves and say it's just for us. If I give it to you, there won't be enough for me. It's something we're commanded to share with others. 
But when we do not share this grace with others, we become inwardly focused. It becomes very dangerous. And that Hebrews 12, verse 15, the second part of that verse, after we're commanded to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, it goes on, it says, that no root of bitterness spring up and causes trouble. And as, as a series theme, I've been saying this every single week. A faith without grace is simply a religion, and that becomes poisonous. A relationship without grace becomes poisonous. A local church without grace becomes poisonous. Our own hearts without grace becomes poisonous. That word bitterness, as it says in Hebrews 12, 15, that root of bitterness, that word bitterness actually has the understanding of a poison. Now, I, none of us want, or we shouldn't, want to take poison in our bodies. Why would we want to hurt ourselves? So the scriptures give us a pathway, or rather a step, to begin this process of releasing us from bitterness. Let me give you a little background. If you have your Bibles, open to Ephesians chapter number 4. Ephesians chapter number 4. Let me give you a little bit of background. This church in a real place called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, they were well known for having a huge temple to a goddess, Diana. We don't really know what she looked like, but what commentators and historians believe, she was a goddess that was a meteor that fell from the sky and it somehow resembled a woman. <laughs> Interesting looking lady. And so they, therefore they set her up as the goddess of the Ephesians and they begin to worship her. And that was the entire culture. If you were an Ephesian, you would worship the goddess Diana. And that was, became who you were, the way that you thought, the way that, that, that your entire life revolved around the worship of, of that temple. There was a great deal of immorality that had to do with this worship. So your entire way that you think about and the way that you look at others becomes negatively filtered through this immorality. So no longer do you see a person as a person, now you see them as an object. And this became the culture of the people. And the, the gospel of Jesus Christ came in. And actually, if you read, read through the book of Acts, tremendous things took place in the city of Ephesus, where literally the whole place was turned upside down for the gospel. The people that used to sell the idols were going out of business because no one was buying their idols anymore because now they were followers of Jesus Christ. But the people were followers of Jesus Christ. They wanted to grow, but they had a problem. They had their old way of living. And the way that they, the, the cultural thought. And can you relate that to our world today? Our world, right is seen as wrong and wrong is seen as right. And the way that the whole way we look at others becomes absolutely the opposite way we find in the scriptures. And that's what we find in this city of Ephesus. And this book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to encourage these Christians to not just I know Jesus Christ is my Savior. Well, I guess when I get to heaven, we'll all work it out. We're to begin growing in our relationship in the here and now. And that's what you and I have the same command to do. In Ephesians chapter number 4, we see the command within the local church for unity. And the Apostle Paul begins to teach on unity. And it says in verses 12 and 13, it says, 
to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up. So we're commanded in the local church for, for unity is to build up and build together the body of Christ until we all obtain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Now, if you're a lady, you can put womanhood in there if you want to. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we're called to build up each other. And we're called to, it says there, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's something as a pastor, a verse that I take very seriously as a mandate and a command to pastors in the local church is to come alongside people and build them up and to grow them and to, to develop them. Continuing on, it says in verse 14, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about with every wind of doctrine. You know, not everything that is said on the Internet, this is maybe surprising to you, not everything that is said on the Internet is true. Oh, it's amazing. And, you know, not everyone that has an opinion means that they're absolutely correct. Amazing. So therefore, when we look at the scriptures, we don't want to be, as it says, they're tossed to and fro with the waves. The waves go this way and the waves go that way. My beliefs are up and my beliefs go down. Some days I feel close to God, other days I feel far from God. That must be true because I feel it. My feelings are all over the place. I want to base my feelings upon facts that we find in the scriptures. It goes on, it says, Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to, first of all, we are to build up and now we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is, into Christ, from whom the whole body, now uses an illustration about our own physical bodies and uses that as an illustration of the local church. Now, you may think of yourself as the head or you may think of yourself as the pinky toe or maybe you're the appendix. Whatever part of the, the, the body you are, you are a necessary part of the body. And I'm glad that you're part of our body here. And it goes on and says, From the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is equipped. When each part is working properly, hear that? When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. So we're here, in this, I'm giving you lots of background here. Commanded to build up, we're commanded to grow up. And it goes on in that chapter and talks about the new life we're commanded to live. Because we're no longer the same person we used to be. Now you put yourself back here in the, in the first century in this real place, in this real city called Ephesus, where their entire culture was surrounding uh, around um, immorality and this evil worship of this goddess Diana. And now they're serving this other God, Jesus Christ and the Jehovah God, the God of the Israelites, the God of the Bible, the true creator of the, the universe. And everyone looks at them and goes, you are really, really weird. Why, aren't, why are you changing? The way that they are called to act becomes a testimony to those around us. The way that you're commanded, we find in Scripture to act, is not the way that is culturally acceptable or the norm. We're called to have a new life as a believer. In verse 24 of that passage, it says, And to put on the new self, 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Go down to verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We're called to, it says there, to put on the new self. We're to put away the old and now put on the new. And it goes on in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all, here's, here's a word, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Last week we talked about grace and grace is greater than my, our greatest hurt. And we looked at really the principle of, of verse 32. It says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Because we are forgiven as people that believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we look around and it doesn't make us pride-filled, it makes us humble. It doesn't build us up and think how good we are. It makes us humble to realize how blessed we are in God's grace. That's last week to set a foundation. We forgive others because we've been forgiven. This week we're looking at releasing our bitterness for others over to God. And then as a little bit of a commercial break for next week, next week we'll be talking about releasing that person who hurt you over to God, and there's a pathway to reconciliation. And that's really a goal. We don't want to just say, okay, I forgive you, but then I'm still in pain. I want to actually move forward and seek reconciliation. There's three doors to dealing with hurt and bitterness. Repression, rehearsal, and release. Our first point this morning is repression. You think about, and use this illustration. In your home, you have a closet, and behind that closet door, there may be a whole bunch of things. And when you have guests over, you don't just open your closet and go, come see all of my junk. Maybe you have an entire room, or that's why you need the huge shed in your backyard to put all the junk of your life in. And you hide it all back in there, and you close the door, and repression is holding on to that door and keeping it closed so that nobody sees. And thinking to yourself, if I just don't think about it, if I just put the pain and the hurt and the bitterness that I feel, if I just put it in the closet and shut the door and lock it and close it and put something in front of it so nobody ever hits that part of my emotion again, then it's all, it will be all right. Oftentimes, that's the way we deal with our hurts. Instead of surrendering them over to God, instead of addressing them, we push them down and we press them and it becomes anger and bitterness and it becomes the norm. That's who we think we are. That's how we're supposed to be. Just push those emotions down, push the, the hurt down and just if I ignore it long enough, then it will go away. The word repress actually means to subdue by force. You're having to force this away. In Hebrews 12, 15, again, we read that earlier. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. There's three different warning signs to repression. 
We're going to walk through them very quickly, and maybe you can relate to this. Now, this is my challenge to you. I mean, we're a very friendly church, and I like people looking at each other, but as we're talking about different forms of repression, I don't want you looking at somebody else and going, that's you. All right. So today is a day where it's all about you today and what you're feeling. So keep your elbows in and keep your eyes straight ahead and don't make God contact with your spouse and no elbowing your brother. The warning signs. Where did this come from? Have you ever said that you've blown up or something's happened? You go that. Where did that come from? That wasn't me. That's not the normal way that I respond. The first warning sign is a warning sign of disproportionate anger over little things. You blow up because that door that you've been trying to hold back and close bursts open and then something comes out that is really who you are. And every other time when you aren't blowing up, you're repressing that normal emotion. That's when people have road rage and they get mad at you and you go, what did I do? I didn't do anything. And they're blowing their top off at you and they drive past as if everything was normal because it really wasn't you at all. There's something they're repressing. There's something where you yell at your children and you get mad. And I've done this, I'll admit, although we're not judging anyone today. We're just talking about ourselves. When the kids spill the milk, you know, it's, it's a big deal. <laughs> they spill the milk and you blow up and you, you always do this and you realize they spilt a little bit of milk and you go, wipe, the problem solved. That's something that I um, admit that I'm working on. You explode with anger and bitterness. So you basically say, boom, where did that come from? You're disproportionately angry over the little things. The second warning sign is you complain about everything. Nothing is good enough. Or when something is good, you find the negative in it. You see everything through a negative lens. And that becomes a personality trait, but that doesn't mean that it, 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 it's a, a, a positive personality trait when someone always sees the negative. I'm going to tell you a, f- a funny story, and, and I, actually I wrote this without expecting my wife to be in the room when I, <laughs> when I wrote this, but it's a good illustration because it's about me. Okay? When we were first married, um, I discovered that I actually snore. And when we were first married, I wake up in the morning. You get a little bit of a sore throat sometimes when you snore. And I wake up and go, oh, oh, <coughs> oh, did I snore last night? And Tammy would go, oh, yes, you did. And as if it was a good thing, and she's just happy to be, we're happy to be married. Everything's wonderful. And now after 16 years of marriage, you wake up, you go, <coughs> oh, did I snore last night? Boom, yes, you did. <laughs> And it becomes very uh, different attitude <laughs> over time. Now I have bruises on my body to show. <laughs> you complain and you, things that used to never bother you begin to bother you. And you find the negative even in the positive. The third warning sign is that you become overly sensitive and defensive. And maybe even now where you're sitting, you're thinking, why is he talking about me? Well, what we're actually doing is we're becoming overly sensitive because we've been pushing these things down. And any time it starts to perk up, any time that I'm feeling this bit of knot in my stomach, which I don't like feeling, I push it down and I become very sensitive because don't talk about me. 
we have a, the door of repression. The second negative door is the door of rehearsal. You have a favorite movie. Or maybe there's a, a, a series of movies that you like. And in my household and probably in yours, you can just say a couple lines of a various movie and they know exactly what the movie is. It's kind of your go-to movie. Anytime you're bored, there's nothing on TV. You watch that and you know that you can watch it again and again and again. And you quote it, quote it, quote it, quote it, quote it. That's not a bad thing. But when it's a negative and when it's something that's hurt you, we have the tendency to rehearse it in our minds. So that when we hear something, it triggers something in our mind and we remember that hurt. Or we, we see something or we see somebody, we walk through a particular door and the memory comes along and we rehearse it in our minds. And there's nothing wrong with rehearsing a movie or even more positively, rehearsing scripture in your mind. But when we're rehearsing the hurt, we always think about, oh, if I only would have said that. And you think through, this is my comeback. If I have another opportunity, this is what I'm going to say next time. And you rehearse it again and again. Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, we're not to repress it. We're not to bring it up in our minds constantly. And it says there, give no opportunity to the devil. That word opportunity actually has the understanding of a place to occupy. So when we are rehearsing the, the, the hurt in our mind, when we're refreshing it again and again, thinking through the various scenarios, it actually it makes us feel better because we think about all the good comebacks we would have had. But what it says in the scriptures is that it gives a place or a foothold or a place to occupy for the devil to work in our lives. It actually is physically unhealthy. There's a University of Michigan in the United States in, in the early 90s. They did a study about bitterness and, uh, and how it's actually chronically dangerous for your body. And they found that uh, chronic anger is more damaging to the body than smoking cigarettes, obesity, and a high-fat diet. And so maybe we need to add something to our, our health system and our, uh, as far as we're not going to be rehearsing the hurt. In Galatians chapter 5, we spent the last several weeks talking about the fruits of the Spirit and trying to make them practical in our lives. And we can know in our head the fruit of the Spirit, the love and the joy and the peace, kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control. We can know it in our head, but when we allow bitterness to be repressed and rehearsed in our mind, we have a door that we should be allowing God to clean out in a closet we should be cleaning out. But So rather than having that door repressed, we're going to be rehearsing. We're going to be opening it up just a crack, just to look through it constantly, reminding ourselves that's not where we should be. It becomes weeds in our life that stops the fruit of the Spirit growing in our lives. Our final is the release. This is the positive. There's two negative doors and one positive door. That's the release. I don't want to be dismissive because this is actually a very simplistic, if you're in church, I know this already type of response and answer. But what, this is exactly what we find in Scripture of how we are to 
overcome bitterness in our life. How we are to discover that grace is greater than the most poisonous bitterness that, are, that, are, that we face. And it's not something that's revolutionary. It's something that's very foundational in our faith. But if we get this part right, I believe it opens us up for a great deal of opportunity in the future. But if we fail to release our bitterness over to God, we are stuck with the doors of repression, the door of rehearsal, and we just become the norm in our life. In Ephesians 4, verse 31, the Apostle Paul says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, so he's naming all these things, he says there, be put away from you along with all malice. Now I can only imagine him writing this, and he writes bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor and slander, then he remembers after he finishes the sentence, oh yeah, and malice. What he's saying here is, Put this away from you. He's basically saying, stop it. You ever had someone just tell you, stop it? It doesn't help. Just stop feeling angry. Just stop feeling bitter. So the Apostle Paul isn't just being dismissive here and saying, just stop it. What he's saying here is, this is the only option. You can't repress this. Rehearsing it won't change it. We're going to have to Put this away. I can only imagine. Now, this is my imagination here. The Apostle Paul is a man that had a history. He had a past. If you read through his, his own description of himself, he was described as a Pharisee of the Pharisee. In other words, he was a religious leader and he loved the law. As a Pharisee, he would have memorized the, the Old Testament, particularly the first five books of the Bible by heart. He would have known the law inside and out, and he was zealous about it. And as a young man, he was previously known as Saul. And as a young man, he was given permission from the priests to go out and find these Christians and to try them, and to basically kill them, and to put them into prison. That was Paul's past. The first time we see Saul mentioned in the New Testament, we see something that I think that, ne that never left Paul's mind. I, I would never forget this. If you have your Bibles, go back to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We have the account of Stephen. Stephen is a man who was one of the first deacons of the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was exploding in growth. People literally by the thousands were placing their trust upon Jesus Christ as the Savior. The apostles were unable to, to do the practical things, so they brought in men of God that were known as deacons. And their deacon actually means servant. So these were servants of the church to do some of the practical things, but also these were godly people. And Stephen was one of these godly men who stepped up and said, I'm not just going to do the practical, I'm also going to go out and preach the, the word of God. I can't help it. And he was out preaching the word of God, and he caught the attention of the religious leaders, and they brought him, and they actually arrested him. They brought him to a trial, and rather than being submissive and, and quiet, Stephen turned it around, and, and he preached a powerful, Message and in fact, 
a powerful message. If you read through the end of chapter number six of the book of Acts through chapter number seven, it's a powerful, powerful message of the gospel. And he points it and turns it around and says, you people, it was you religious leaders and in, in the nation of Israel totally missed the Messiah and you crucified him because you're stubborn. Now, they didn't like being called stubborn, and this is their response in Acts chapter 7, verse 57. But they, that is the religious leaders, they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. They took huge stones and began to throw them down at Stephen because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes on and says, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. The man who told us to put away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, has, as a young man, he oversaw the murder of a Christian. Now, how would you react when, a, when hate-filled people are dragging you out and they're beginning to murder you? They're in the, the actual act of murdering you. They're throwing rocks at you, throwing stones at you. It doesn't feel good. It, you know, incredible pain. I've no doubt he cried out in pain as well. But what is his response? Continue on in verse number 59. And as they were stoning him. Now, Honestly, the way the scripture describes it here is, is actually very G-rated. But if you begin thinking through the trauma of this, the shouts and the jeers, the agony that this man was experiencing as they were actively throwing rocks at him in the process of killing him. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. His last words are, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You would think at any particular time in somebody's life when it's okay to hold on to a little bit of bitterness and anger, it's when they're murdering you. Now, this is something as a response that I think we can all live in our lives and begin to apply. Stephen simply copied Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross being crucified for your sin and my sin, he says, Father, forgive them in Luke 23, for they know not what they do. You notice the prayer they prayed here isn't a prayer of God Help me to forgive them. It's actually the first step is not your forgiveness, is seeking God's forgiveness on their part. Now, granted, we can't, have a, we can't see a person saved on our behalf, or rather on their behalf. They have to do that for themselves. But the attitude here is, Father, you forgive them. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here's the real key, and here's the, the real simplistic step that I want you to begin to go out and practice. 
Because there will be people this week that come to your mind that you're either rehearsing the pain or you're pushing it back further, closing that closet door, trying to find another lock to hold it down and to repress it again. Here's the positive action and here's the positive step. When you feel that urge to rehearse, when you feel that urge to repress, rather than rehearsing and repressing it, let's turn to God in prayer and to say, God, will you forgive them? Here's the first step is you're passing it on and you're handing that that person over to God. You cannot forgive them without first understanding that God needs to forgive them. This is to me is absolutely revolutionary. Now, again, for a commercial break for next week, next week we're talking about vengeance and how to overcome vengeance and also work in a pathway towards restoration. We don't do that in our own strength and our own power. Ephesians 4 verse 22 says, Put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life. Maybe you're sitting there thinking to yourself right now, that's too easy. But it says here, put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Our salvation is a one time event, but our spiritual growth is ongoing and continual. I'm going to let you in on a little bit of weirdness in my mind, and maybe you can relate to this and maybe begin to apply something similar in your own life. There are people that have hurt me in my past. And there are people that it's easy to rehearse in your mind all the things I should have said or should have done or how they were so wrong in what they did. And I decided in my mind to pray God forgive them. I'm working on the restoration. And here's a little bit of, of what I do personally. There's a particular door that I go through multiple times a day. Particularly in the early days of that hurt, every single time you walk through that door, I would think about that person and I would choose to pray, God, will you bless them? Will you protect them? Will you help them? Rather than thinking, God, will you stomp on them? Because that's what I really want to feel. I, mean, I want somewhere in the Bible to go, hate your enemies. It doesn't say that. So I walk through the door and I say, God, will you bless them? And you know, I found over time, and it didn't take a day, it didn't take a week, over the time of years, I walk through various doorways and I've had to move house and change doorways, is that I can walk through that door without thinking about that hurt and thinking about that pain because God's replaced that with other things. And next week we'll be talking about restoration and, and, the, and desire uh, and seeking restoration. So I'm, I, I readily admit that I'm leaving you hanging on the edge today. But let's just begin going out and processing and putting into practice, simply praying God forgive. Let's go back to what Stephen said in, in Acts chapter 7. Lord, do not hold the sin against them giving the bitterness and the poisonous pain over to God and saying, God, this is yours. I can't handle this on my own. You have one of these cards in your hand. Maybe you need to write that person's name down, write that circumstance down, and use this as a reminder and rip it up. Burn it in the fire when you go home. 
do something with it and say, God, your grace is greater than my greatest bitterness.